Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. For more information about our church, feel free to visit www.fbhanford.org. Good morning, First Baptist. It's great to uh, have the opportunity to be in front of you uh, this morning. Uh, It's been great to be able to give Pastor Peter a couple of Sundays off, give him some vacation and a chance just to uh, rest and relax a little bit. And I can promise you he'll be back here next week. He'll be bringing his A game, uh, ready to go, uh, bringing the word as we continue to walk through uh, the book of Galatians together. Uh, But be praying for him. Uh, We're grateful that we were able to give him a little bit of a blow. Kyle did a great job last week, and it's my opportunity uh, this morning to continue our walk through uh, Galatians. Well, there's a phrase that is fairly familiar in our culture uh, nowadays. It's primarily in the political realm, uh, but it is this idea of uh, fake news. Uh, What will happen is something will get reported, uh, and then depending on whichever side of the issue you're on, the cry goes out, hey, that's fake news. And I think that's not too much different than what Paul's been doing uh, with the Galatians. He's been letting them know that they have embraced something that uh, however they got the news or however they got the information, it's inaccurate. And he's been trying to address it in his writing to the Galatians. So thus far, just as a reminder, uh, the Galatian churches are in an area of Western Asia, which is uh, today modern-day Turkey. Uh, Paul visited there on one of his missionary journeys and... In the aftermath of that, there were communities, uh, church communities that that started. And uh, Paul now is uh, writing back to them because he's gotten uh, news that they've embraced some bad teaching, some bad doctrine. And he's reminding them um, what really is true. And he's re-emphasizing the gospel that he brought to them in the first place. And really reminding them that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We've been calling this... Jesus plus nothing. So he's been quite firm. He hasn't minced words. He's um, done his best to make the issue crystal clear. But now as he's getting to the end of this letter, he, we're seeing a little bit more of his pastoral side, his love uh, for the Galatians. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded about my own life, and maybe some of you have had a similar experience. I know that the many times that we have uh, been to Mexico, Uh, There are people in Mexico that I think about often. Uh, I've known some of them uh, 20 plus years, and I think about them. I wonder what's happening in their life, and it really, uh, they really are close to my heart. It's something I think about a lot. And a couple weeks ago, I was uh, talking with Jason Highfill, and we were reflecting on one of our trips to Thailand, or a couple trips that we did together to Thailand. And I was asking Jason if he remembered any of the people that we had had contact with when we were in Thailand, and and he rattled off a couple of people right off the bat that he remembered and that he said, I still think about them and what's happening in their life. So you can see that even though Paul didn't uh, see these people often, uh, they were people that he loved very deeply and he cared about what was happening and wanted more than anything for their faith to grow and to increase. So this morning we want to continue our walk through the the book of Galatians in in Galatians chapter 5 beginning at Verse 7, if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to take that out, read that along with me. Here's what it says. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. 
Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So first of all, some interesting metaphors right there at the beginning in verse 7. Uh, Paul uses uh, or makes this statement. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? And that idea there is who hindered you, who tripped you up, who threw a roadblock in front of you. And this athletic imagery is something that Paul uses actually uh, quite often. If you are familiar in, in 1 Corinthians 9, earlier on in the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, uh, in Philippians chapter 3, 2 Timothy 4, all these places Paul loves to use that athletic imagery and he has really viewed often the Christian life as a race. And so as he's thinking about this, he's uh, noticing in the Galatians that someone has, something or someone has stepped in and derailed them. And we've seen over the past few weeks that Paul is making the issue that the Galatians are dealing with very, very clear. Pastor Peter has reminded us over and over, almost every week, that there is this false teaching that has infiltrated the Galatian churches. And this teaching is basically saying that true justification... True salvation comes through faith in Jesus plus obedience to the Jewish law. And Paul's made it clear that this is false. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. So how does this particular false teaching creep into our lives? I mean, this morning you may find yourself, as you're reflecting on your own faith journey, maybe uh, exhausted, worn out, feeling like there's just a big burden Uh, as you work through your Christian faith. Maybe you're disappointed because you've embraced some version of this teaching, that there's this expectation that if I'm obedient, if I do what God asks me to do, God will bless me. God will bless me. God will show up. And that his acceptance is based on that obedience. You know, Kyle reminded us last week, uh, he did a great job of uh, giving us a good idea of what biblical freedom really looks like. And so you may be feeling this morning anything but free because you've embraced some variation of this teaching. And it's a very, very real thing. You've become a slave to the kind of faith that has a a lot of boxes to check and you feel like you're on a treadmill, always having to produce something in your relationship with God. And that's really what Paul's addressing as he's writing this letter to the Galatians. So what does Paul say about this false teaching? This is important for us to know. And I'm looking now at verses 8 and 9 of our passage. As a reminder, it says this, That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. So the first thing that we can say is that this teaching has its origin someplace other than God's mercy and grace. Paul says that that this teaching did not come, or this way of thinking did not come from the one who called you. The implication is that it comes from someplace else. And I think it's safe to say that the implication is that it comes from Satan himself. Satan's key strategy really is to deceive us. And that's what this is all about. 
And the second thing he says is that this teaching will infect everywhere that it touches. And it's pretty clear here that Paul is quoting some kind of statement that the Galatians would have been familiar with. And it is true that Jesus used this imagery of yeast and dough in his teaching. And so it's something they had probably heard before. But false teaching, much like yeast in bread dough, spreads and impacts every bit of that dough. And it impacts every bit of our life. And that's really the nature of ideas, isn't it? Ideas have consequences that come along with them. And as we embrace certain ideas, they will have a direct impact on how we view the world, how we view and treat other people in our life, how we think about the future. Think for a second about these big ideas like creation, evolution, atheism, polytheism, monotheism. All these big ideas have consequences. They have impact to how we live our life. And so we need to recognize that as we, th- we have these ideas and these ideas come to be part of our life, there are consequences that come along with them. And that's what's happened with the Galatians. They've gotten derailed by embracing a false teaching that's taking them on a track that is really becoming more of a burden than it is helpful in their relationship with God. So this morning I want us to think about what we can learn from Paul about how to respond to false teaching and false ideas that we might encounter in our walk of faith. And the first big idea I want us to land on today is this idea of engaging rather than ignoring. It's important for us to engage false teaching where we see it. And Paul was not afraid to confront what he believed was false or what he thought was wrong. In fact, this very same issue that we've been talking about all the way through the book of Galatians, this idea of embracing the Old Testament law or forcing uh, uh, Gentiles to embrace the Old Testament law, is something that had been circulating around for some time. If you'd look back in Acts chapter 15, if you'd flip over to Acts chapter 15, I want to remind you or uh, remind you of an episode in Paul's life that happened 10 to 15 years before he even wrote the book of Galatians. Acts chapter 15 and verses 1 and 2 says this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. We don't need to read any more about that right now. I would encourage you though to uh, read further into this account in Acts chapter 15. They have a wonderful spirited debate and conversation about this issue. And they come to a decision that the Gentiles will not be required to be subject to the Old Testament law. Keep in mind, this was 10 to 12, maybe 15 years before Paul wrote the Galatians. So you can understand a bit of Paul's frustration because he's been chasing this false teaching this whole time. It keeps springing up in different places. And so he addresses it about as forcefully as you can in Verse number 12, and he mentions the idea or the practice of castration, which there were pagan groups in the area that were practicing this sacred castration with the priests that were part of these cult groups. And Paul's basically saying, if you continue to embrace this, in essence, you're insisting on something that's just as unnecessary as what these pagans are doing. 
And so we need to recognize that it's important for us to engage, not ignore false teaching when we see it. So how can we do that? What's going to help us to be able to engage what is false uh, more effectively? And so I want to walk through a couple of these. I think these are super important for us as we uh, try to understand uh, as we're dealing with things that may creep into our life, uh, ideas and maybe even doctrinal things that run contrary to what Scripture says. So the first thing uh, that I would encourage is this. We need to know the truth. Anytime that we're encountering something that is false or that we're questioning, it should drive us back to the Word of God. It's crucial that we know and understand what the Bible teaches. And I'm not talking now about reading our, our Bible devotionally, but there comes a time where we really need to begin to study and go deeper and understand what the Bible is teaching and reading the Bible for a deeper understanding of what it says. I would encourage you to surround yourself with people that you trust, people that are going to tell you the truth, that will keep you on a path, that will keep you walking in what is true rather than drifting into something that is an error or something that is false. And I would suggest that this is another great reason why we do small groups, that you can have people around you that are going to be pushing you towards what is true and helping you uh, from straying away from uh, what, embracing something that's false and straying away from what is true. And then I would encourage an understanding of history. We need to look back and see how these ideas have played out in the past. We need to know our Old Testament. We need to know church history. We need, to, we need to see how those things have happened so that we can avoid making similar errors. And again, this takes work, but if we will do these things, it will increase our confidence in holding on to the truth and, and engaging what is false. So once we know what is true, we can then begin to, to move into identifying what is false. And this is important because what is false can take us off track very, very quickly. I wanted to share with you a, a story uh, years ago on one of our Thailand trips, my good friend Lee Pritchard, uh, when we had, gotten, uh, we had gone into the village, we had done some work uh, there uh, with the villagers, and we had come back into Chiang Mai. And each night in Chiang Mai, there's a, there's a big market. And you can walk up and down the streets, and you can buy all sorts of stuff. And so we, were, we had a couple nights in Chiang Mai. And so uh, our group was walking through there, and Lee came or had come across a lady uh, that had a big basket of these silver dollars, uh, the U.S. silver dollars. This one is uh, dated 1896. And she probably, uh, Lee could tell you for sure, but I'm going to guess she had 40 or 50 of these in a basket. And Lee walked by and looked at them and kind of held them, and, and uh, he thought, man, that looks great. And he asked her how much she wanted uh, for them. I don't remember what she said. I'm going to say $5, but anyway, Lee could tell you for sure. He didn't buy anything initially, but he just kept thinking about it, and he went back, and uh, he ended up buying, I don't know, maybe the whole basket of these silver dollars. And he, I think maybe somewhere in his mind, he was hoping that that lady didn't know what she had, that she didn't know that she had maybe thousands of dollars worth of silver dollars, and that he was going to make a great deal on these things. So he, he bought them. He had to get them all the way back to the U.S. Customs was interesting when they were looking at uh, what he had in his luggage, uh, but he got back and had it checked out. And sure enough, if they were not false, they were not counterfeit. And so now he's got a, a bag full of silver dollars. And I happen to have a couple of them I keep for just moments like this. Where we can be re reminded that regardless of how true it might sound or what it might look like, look like there's got to be a way to identify whether it's true or false. And so we need to understand 
that when we're talking about uh, false teaching, it creeps into our lives sometimes very subtly, and we have to be very careful of it. So I think it's important for us to ask, how might counterfeit or false doctrine and teaching be impacting our life in the year 2020? And so I've reflected on that a little bit, and I want to suggest a couple ways in which I, I, I think this false teaching or a false teaching is pretty prevalent. One is this idea of people, when they're describing their spirituality, they will use phrases like, well, to me, God is, or my truth is. And so what we're basically doing at that point is we are creating God or redefining God or redefining spirituality in our own image or what suits us. I think that's fairly prevalent. There's another idea that uh, there's people that are tithing, praying, volunteering, serving, and they find themselves asking, how come God is not responding to my goodness? I'm doing all the right things. Why is it that God is not blessing me like I expect? And this is a variation, I suppose, of the prosperity gospel. But there's people that feel this way, that they have this expectation that God should respond to my uh, goodness. And so we need to be careful that even in the year 2020, it may not be an Old Testament law issue, but there are plenty of false ideas and false teachings that creep into our uh, Christian lives for sure. So in order to identify error, I want to suggest a couple of things. One is uh, certainly knowing the truth, but also listening carefully and critically to what you're hearing. And this includes what you're hear hearing right now. That just because Jeff's standing up here or Peter's standing up here or Kyle's standing up here, whoever you might be listening to, I don't care how famous they are, just because they have a platform doesn't mean what they're saying is the biblical truth. And so we need to listen carefully. We need, need to listen critically. And I would really encourage using the Bible as a filter, nothing else. That we need to filter what we hear through what God's word says to us. And then I think along that line, we need to consider the source. We need to, as we look at websites, as we are, are searching the web, that we are looking carefully at where is this coming from? Who wrote this? What was the instance and, and, and how it was written and all those things. So once we are, are deeping, uh, digging deep into the truth and we're working hard to identify what is false, we then we need to be ready to respond. And so... Uh, when I think about responding to what is false, I, there's some ideas that creep into my mind. And I think the first, probably first and foremost for me, is this idea of just being willing to be present with a person, listen, and listen well. That we would ask good questions, that we would demonstrate a real uh, willingness to understand where they're coming from. How did they come to hold this particular belief or this particular idea? Relationship in this kind of engagement is essential. It's essential that we have a relationship that is full of love, mutual respect, understanding. And so we, we need to uh, really be willing to be present in the lives of, of the people that we're uh, engaging with. We need to identify where false teaching goes wrong. Many times false teaching has just enough truth much like a silver dollar in the marketplace in Thailand, just enough truth to make us think that it's real. And so we need to identify where indeed it goes wrong. And then we need to fill in the blanks with where that kind of reasoning or where that idea might be headed. 
And I'm going to be honest with you at this point, this is a place where I do not uh, do very well. I need to really work hard at filling in the blanks in the, in the bigger picture of, of where ideas are headed. And so, but it's important for us to do this work. It, it's, not, it's not good enough in my mind just to say, hey, that's not true. We need to be able to work it out and see where it's headed. And so uh, filling in those blanks and, and reasoning through where that kind of thinking is headed is really important. So we're going to engage rather than ignore false teaching in our lives. And then the second big idea this morning is we want to respond with love rather than with hate and division. Let me remind you again what Paul said in verses 13 through 15. He said this, You, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So in verse 13, Paul's changing gears a little bit here. He spent the first two-thirds of this letter talking about doctrine and theology. We've heard about law, grace, freedom, justification by faith, legalism. And now he's moving on to what is going to be more practical. And I think, the, I think you'll find the rest of our time in Galatians to be a very practical to what it means now to live out uh, Christian faith. And here's an interesting idea that I came across as I was thinking about this. And this, this idea of uh, your theology is of very little value if it cannot be lived out. Think about that. You can have tremendous theology, but if you can't figure out how it impacts your life and how you're going to live differently, uh, it doesn't have a lot of value uh, for us. And so Paul begins to provide some of this practical application. And he starts by giving a warning. He says this, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So here we see, I believe, another place where false teaching can go wrong. This, this hyper-freedom creates this attitude where my, my lifestyle or my obedience to God's truth becomes less important because, you know, God understands. He knows I've got an issue here. Uh, he knows I struggle with this. And so he understands my problem, and, he, and he's going to offer me forgiveness anyway. And when we think about that, it really cheapens what God has done for us. And it's a misunderstanding of, of what God ultimately wants for us as we seek to obey him. And uh, pastor and theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this would be back in the 1940s, 30s and 40s, um, Bonhoeffer um, has a great quote. And as he's thinking about this kind of idea, he called it cheap grace. And this is, this is how he defined it. He says, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without accountability. Grace without discipleship. And that's what Paul's warning against. A true understanding of God's love and grace in our life, it, it fundamentally changes us. It changes who we are. It's no longer about me and what I have to do to gain God's favor. I'm now free to serve and love those around me. And ironically, as much as Paul has been kind of pushing back against the law, the Old Testament law, he actually says in this passage that the law can be summed up and fulfilled by this phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And we find that in Leviticus chapter 19, and Jesus himself 
uh, said that in answer to a question about what is the greatest uh, commandment in Matthew 22. So love for others. What does that look like? What does it mean? How can I begin to love others like God would want, want me to do? So I think it starts by acknowledging their dignity, that they are a child of God, someone that God loves, that we're talking with another person here. However much we might disagree with them, wherever they've come from, wherever they're going, whatever they might believe, they're still a human being that has dignity and we need to respond with love and really value them as for who they are. Philippians 2 reminds us that we need to think of others before ourselves. We need to have some empathy and recognize that they've got a past, they've got a history, they've maybe been brought up a particular way or maybe they've had circumstances in their life that have colored how they think and how they believe. And so thinking of others before ourselves is, is important. And ultimately, we want to seek their good. We want them to come to know the truth of who God is, right? We want them to flourish in their life. We want them to know not that we're against them, but that, we're, that we are for them, that we support them, that we love them. And then ultimately, I think this loving others really has a lot to do with sacrificial service to them. And in fact, that's what Paul says in verse 13. He says, serve one another humbly. And that's really uh, what that idea is, that sacrificially serving those around us. Jesus himself taught extensively on this idea. Think about the story of the Good Samaritan, for example. The Sermon on the Mount is full of teaching related to how, how we can interact uh, with, with people and how we should engage the world around us. His teaching is paradigm shifting. It's life changing. Uh, this teaching takes us out of our comfort zone our comfort zone and I believe that this is often where we fall short as Christians individually and also collectively as a church that we know the teaching we we hear the teaching but put it into practice is where we fall short and then he talks about the consequences of division he says listen if you're going to keep biting each other and fighting one another it's you're going to destroy one another you're devaluing one another and I believe ultimately our witness is compromised. When people see, especially if it's happening within the church, our witness is compromised. So let me finish with this today. We have to ask, how do we tell the truth and maintain healthy, loving, positive relationships? And I would suggest that there are some things that we can really do practically in how we think and actually how we approach people. I would say we need to realize that God is always at work in me and God is always at work around me and that I need to work hard to create space rather than me maybe pushing my way into a circumstance or situation, that I need to create space for God to work, whether it's in the workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood, Whoever you might be engaging with, if you would create space for God to work and allow for a conversation to happen, allow for a relationship to be nurtured and built. Because there's another great uh, truth I want uh, to share with you uh, today, and it's this idea that truth without the presence and power of God is not convincing. Truth without the presence and power of God is not convincing. Now, make no mistake. Truth is crucial. And truth is always the truth. It never ceases to be the truth. But unfortunately, many people are not 
as concerned about the truth as they are concerned about seeing how it works in real life. And so this matters because a, a vast majority of our country uh, claims Christian truth, claims to believe Christian doctrinal truth. But we don't always see this kind of thinking reflected in the attitudes and actions around us. And I believe that this is a gap that the church of Jesus Christ can fill. We can fill this as believers, this gap that's created between what's proclaimed as truth, Christian truth, and how it's actually lived out. This is a gap that we can fill. There's an encounter recorded in John chapter 8 between Jesus and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. And they've brought a woman to him that has been caught in the act of adultery. And they bring her to him really with the intention of trying to trip Jesus or catch Jesus uh, or trick Jesus into saying something that will give them some ammunition against him. And they say to Jesus, hey, the, the law of Moses says that this woman should be stoned for what she's stoned to death because of what she's done. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus famously says, well, he, he stoops down, at the, the scripture says, stoops down and he writes in the ground and then he stands up and says, uh, whoever of you is without sin can cast the first stone. And one by one, those teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they walk away. And eventually Jesus stands up and says this. It says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So FBH, as we journey through this life of faith and as we encounter ideas that are false, ideas that run in contradiction to uh, biblical truth and uh, that lead to a life that falls short of what uh, God has desired for us, would we engage these people with love? Would we engage them with grace? Would we engage them with truth and create space, create a place for the presence and power of God to work so that they would know that we are for them, that we are not against them, and that we can say, like Jesus said, neither do we condemn you. Come and leave your life of sin. Let me pray for us. This morning it's possible that you have never uh, really even come to understand uh, what a relationship with Jesus looks like. And maybe you've just been on that treadmill of not feeling free, feeling burdened by all these expectations that you put on yourself and that you need to truly be set free by coming to know Jesus as your Savior. And you can pray along with me uh, as we do each week. You can just say this, that, that, that God, uh, I admit that I'm a sinner. I've, I've fallen short of what you desire for me, and I need a Savior. I need Jesus. And I believe that he's your son. I believe he came and died for my sins, and I choose now to follow him the rest of my life. And the rest of us this morning maybe need to uh, recognize that uh, we need to be a little bit more proactive in uh, our life, our spiritual life, that we need to grow deeper in our understanding of faith, and we need to grow deeper in our understanding of how God wants us to embrace what is false. So let me pray for you as well. God, we are your people. 
We desire more than anything to live a life that would point people to you. Would you give us a deeper awareness, a deeper understanding of who you are in our life? Would you give us a deeper understanding of the truth of your word? Would you give us wisdom on on how best we can engage the world around us when we see something that is untrue, something that is false, that we would engage it with love, we would engage it with grace, and that we would make your truth evident. And then, God, you would show up in the midst of that, that your power would then transform lives as as we bring your truth to bear in the world around us. So, God, go before us. Be our strength. Give us wisdom as we head into this week. In Jesus' name, amen.